So greetings and welcome back to an episode of AMSSM Sports Medcast in partnership with the British Journal of Sports Medicine. My name is Dr. Giorgio Negron and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Kenneth Mountner, an associate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Mountner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, I appreciate the opportunity. So the topic we're going to be discussing today will be on the state of orthobiologics and regenerative medicine. With you being such a leader in this field, in your own words, what are orthobiologics and regenerative medicine? So, you know, I think those are actually uh, two different terms. Uh, and the term regenerative medicine is kind of the global term that this whole field is kind of under, uh, that the FDA and other organizing bodies use, uh, which basically is the field of replacing or regenerating human cell tissues or organs to help restore or establish normal function. However, you know, orthobiologics is what we in the sports medicine and, and orthopedic world do, where we use biological substances that can assist the healing process of, of mostly chronic injuries um, and can help modulate the environment of certain orthopedic conditions. There's a little bit of a difference between the two. Um, and for what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I do prefer the term orthobiologics. And we'll talk about the fact, I'm sure, in the future about how these processes may or may not be actually regenerating cells. So yeah, like the orthobiologics, um, there's, all, there's a lot of terms I, that I hear now throughout the public. You know, the first, first and foremost that comes to mind is PRP. So what, what is exactly is PRP and how did it become so popular? Yeah, so PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. And basically, anytime you have a concentration of platelets above that of, of the whole blood, that's considered PRP. Um, and obviously, that can be a wide variety of concentrations of platelets that you can have. And that's part of the issue with PRP, why they're so kind of controversial, because th there's so many different um, variables that go into making a PRP product. And, and that's kind of led us to the point of our research being very flawed and, and taking a long time to get to this point. In terms of its application to orthopedic and sports medicine, um, it really started kind of in the mid-2000s. Uh, prior to that, it had been used some in veterinary medicine, especially if horses were being treated with PRP for some of their um, injuries. Prior to that, a lot of the dental field were using PRP. Um, but in the mid-2000s, uh, there was a study by Alan Mishra out of Stanford that was done on lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow for PRP. And that was one of the first human studies ever published, and that was in 2006. And it really set the stage for treating some of these athletes. Um, initially, PRP was really used to treat a lot of our elite athletes. We would take a chronic injury, and they would be trying to rehab forever, or they would be doing all the eccentric protocols or, or resting and doing all the things that we are supposed to do for these injuries. And we were just finding that some of them just weren't healing. And, and so the idea was if you could take a super physiological amount of platelets, which had these growth factors in them, and you could inject these platelets into the area where the injury is, you could then almost jumpstart the healing process and allow that healing to go on um, as if it was almost like a new injury to the area. Mm. And, and the, the early successes in case series are really good. And that's kind of how the, how the whole thing took off from there. Nice. So in, in exactly like in PRP, what is the component in PRP that actually helps with musculoskeletal injuries? So inside of PRP are there's a whole soup of things, right? And inside of that soup, the thing we focus on mostly are the platelets. And inside the platelets are these alpha granules and these alpha granules release these substances, all these growth factors. Um, and these growth factors help to modulate or help to, help to form that cascade of healing. 
the example I use is if you were to cut yourself um, immediately when you cut yourself, your platelets are released from your vasculature. Uh, they'll attach to the area, they form a clot, and then these platelets will release all these tiny growth factors that will actually help yourself heal your skin to the point where you can't even tell that you cut yourself. And so, you know, regeneration and regenerative medicine has been going on for as long as we've been around, at least. Um, and this is just a way to try to harness it to kind of help some of these chronic injuries uh, do better than, than they have been in the past. And I know that, so I see, you know, I've read a bunch of your, your research and, and you created this sort of standardized classification for PRP. Can you explain a little bit more about the variabilities that you know that that's most important to know about this PRP? Yeah, so with PRP, it's really important that we understand the variables in PRP and that when we're doing research or we're talking about PRP, we're not using this blanket term. It's a very vague term. And the, the example I use is if I were to tell you, well, does this medication help to treat this infection? And you would ask me a bunch of questions. You'd want to know, well, what's the dose of the medication? How many times a day are you taking the medication? How many days are you going to take the medication for? And, and just saying, you know, PRP doesn't answer any of those questions. Okay. So there have been multiple classification systems that are out there, and I'm not trying to claim mine better than the others. Uh, the one that me and some of my uh, colleagues put forth in, in 2015, we call it the PLRA classification. And basically the idea is that, number one, we want to know how many platelets that we're injecting, and not just the concentration of platelets, but how many platelets are being delivered to the site of the injury. Because if you have a certain concentration of platelets, let's just say a million platelets per microliter, and you're injecting two cc's, you're injecting 10 cc's, that's a five-fold difference in the amount of platelets you're actually injecting into the area. Second, we want to know about the leukocytes, right? So what white blood cells constitute the, the product? A lot of these products you will get can be made leukocyte-rich or leukocyte-poor, and, and that can give us some information about what the effect of the leukocyte may be on the healing properties, and there may be some argument as to when you want one versus the other one. But we need to know what's in it because it might make a difference. And in some instances, leukocytes is probably not beneficial for healing and, in fact, may, may lead to worse outcomes. Thirdly, red blood cells. Our classification system was the first one that actually mentioned red blood cells. Um, and there's so much evidence now on the negative effects of not only red blood cells, but red blood cell products um, and the hemolysis that occurs when we actually uh, take red blood cell, we put them through this uh, centrifugation, and then we inject them into these areas. And so these products that contain a lot of red blood cells may actually be having toxic effects on the local environments that we inject them to, much like we know that hemophiliacs who bleed into joints are very prone to get arthritis yeah. from persistently bleeding into joints. And then lastly, activate. Um, activation is not as much of an issue now as it used to be, meaning that a lot of the PRP products early on were activated with either calcium chloride or some sort of thrombin product uh, to kind of release the growth factors more quickly. Uh, but nowadays, a lot of the time with uh, PRP, we're not actually activating. We're letting the collagen and the natural activation in the body occur, which we think is probably uh, more helpful for the healing process. Awesome. Thank you. And just kind of like to close in for the loop for PRP, what do you, what do you like to use PRP for for your patients? So uh, first I'll say that we still need more data on PRP. Um, PRP has really good data for certain things. For example, uh, lateral epicondylopathy or chronic tennis elbow condition, multiple uh, randomized controlled double-blind trials showing its effectiveness in treating that condition. 
Woot Media is tendinopathy. There's multiple randomized control trial as well now showing its benefit for that condition. Uh, knee osteoarthritis. The evidence for knee OA is overwhelming that in mild to moderate OA, PRP is effective uh, for a period of time in treating these patients. It's not going to heal their arthritis, but it's going to make them improve their symptoms in a majority of the people who get the PRP done. And in fact, multiple studies and meta-analysis show that it's better than hyaluronic acid injection, which are generally covered by insurance uh, for treating osteoarthritis, um, as well as better than uh, corticosteroids and other things that it's been compared to in the long run. Outside of that, there's lots of other tendons that we use PRP for and, and joints as well. The evidence isn't as strong. Um, chronic patella tendinopathy, plantar fasciopathy, um, as well as rotator cuff tendinopathy. Uh, so all these things, you know, PRP can be made an argument for, uh, but some of them we still need more evidence and research to say how it works, what's the right dose or formula to treat that tendon. Thanks. In the realm that we were talking about for orthobiologics, I know, I know the other side of it was stem cells. You hear a lot about stem cells. So what are stem cells and what's the general definition of stem cells? So um, most people are aware of stem cells from, you know, back in the 90s when embryonic stem cells were kind of around and were controversial and, and, and people were trying to take embryos and, and use them for research purposes and the government kind of stepped in and, and, and had some ethical issues with people doing that. Um, over the last 20 years, the focus on stem cells for what I do is really this mesenchymal stem cells, uh, which is a, a cell that in a laboratory, in a test tube, um, has been shown to be able to replicate and duplicate and turn into different tissues. For our purposes, these cells probably act more like signaling cells uh, where they help to modulate inflammation, they help to uh, create a healthier healing environment um, inside of joints and inside of tendons to let the body go in and actually uh, do some repair and, and uh, make the patients feel better. So it's not really like uh, the cell is differentiating into the environment more so of what it's creating for the environment and creating the, it's like the anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So we try and get away from this term of differentiation or truly regeneration. Uh, we know that in most cases of osteoarthritis, if we inject any kind of a signal and cell or, or cellular product into the area, we're not getting new cartilage to grow. Uh, we're certainly working towards that, and there's some research studies kind of working towards that. But really, these, these trophic or paracrine effects inside the joint, where we're modulating the joint environment, um, getting rid of inflammation, uh, getting rid of something called apoptosis, so we're preventing death of cartilage cells, and, and helping with uh, scar tissue, um, and helping with pain. There's actually evidence that some of these cells will actually directly uh, bind to opioid receptors and may modulate pain that way as well. Oh, interesting. And in your clinic, how do we, how do you obtain these mesenchymal stem cells? The two ways that I mostly obtain these cells in the clinic um, are through people's fat or through their bone marrow. Um, and, and these are by far the two most popular ways that are being done in, in the United States these days. Um, both of these cells, uh, both of these processes, uh, we use minimal manipulation. We, we're not adding any enzymes or digesting the cells. We're doing sim simple centrifugation or we're doing some uh, purification, meaning we're cleansing, we're rinsing, uh, we're resizing and reshaping the cells, um, and then we're just injecting them as a graft into another area uh, of the body. And is there a differentiation when getting adipose versus bone marrow? 
So there's several factors that go into it. The old argument um, for years, bone marrow was considered the, the better source of these cells for orthopedic conditions, mainly because that's what the literature looked at. Um, and especially they thought that bone marrow may be more um, apt to be helpful for cartilage. And, and, you know, younger people tend to have more cells in their bone marrow as we age, then we, we lose some of our, our cellular components of our bone marrow. And maybe bone marrow isn't as effective or certainly isn't as concentrated as we get older. Whereas fat, you know, tends to accumulate a little bit more as we age. And, and so sometimes it's an easier source of cells to get on folks who are a little bit older. Um, it doesn't seem to undergo the same kind of senescence or dying out um, as our bone marrow cells do. Um, and I've done some research. I published a study last year looking at knee arthritis, comparing bone marrow-derived versus adipose-derived cells uh, for knee osteoarthritis. And if we looked at my results at the one to one and a half year mark, there was no difference in outcome between the two. So I think they both can be quite effective for, for treating knee osteoarthritis and, and other conditions. And uh, now about like what I'm seeing on the news lately, and especially this podcast that I was listening to, Bad Batch, um, can you talk a little bit about these pop-up stem cell clinics and their products that they're advertising? Yeah, so this has been a big issue over the last several years. Um, if you look back over the last 10 years, the number of pop-up stem cell clinics in this country have risen from you know, about 20 to over 1,000. Um, and these companies, about 70% of them do have uh, uh, MDs or, or osteopathic physicians running them, but 30% of them don't even have doctors who are treating patients. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, I, I could tell you several stories of people who got kind of taken, uh, taken advantage of not only with misdiagnosis, uh, but also just uh, treatments that were completely ineffective and didn't make it make any intuitive sense. A lot of these products are, are trying to harness these uh, birth tissue products, right? So they talk a lot about these products that come from birth tissue, the amniotic tissue, um, umbilical cord tissue, something called Wharton jelly. The problem with a lot of these birth tissue products is that the, the ones that are commercially made, by the time they get to your office, by the time you thaw them out, by the time you go to inject them, independently when they've been tested, they've been shown to have really no functional stem cells in the product. And their concentration of growth factors probably is similar to what a PRP injection would be, sometimes not even as much. And so I don't want to say these products are, are not helpful at all. And, and I I do see some use for them for certain conditions, uh, but they need to be better studied. There's been very little orthopedic research. The claims that these, um, these pop-up clinics are making are, are, are bordering on absurd at times um, with the amount of success rate that they claim. They're taking advantage of a population of patients who just don't have a lot of options. Yeah. So I guess my bottom line is we just need to be really careful all of these things are still being vetted through um, randomized controlled trials and experiments, uh, which we're helping to do some at Emory. And, and the thing that bothers me the most is that, you know, most people kind of lump everybody in the field of regenerative medicine into kind of being a charlatan or someone on the fringe of medicine. Uh, when we really need to separate those who are the bad actors who are, you know, willfully trying to make money and, and, and promote these products that may not have much effect in this, versus people who are actually trying to do some good work in the area and advance the field um, at the same time. Well put. As we're finishing this up, just to talk a little bit about, um, about your research and is there anything new that you're working on? 
Yeah, so uh, we, we have several studies going on right now. I will say we are doing a study with one of these amniotic drive companies, but we're doing a, a blinded randomized trial comparing it to a corticosteroid injection for knee osteoarthritis. And we're going to see if it has some effectiveness and where it might fit in. If there is an off-the-shelf product that turns out to be effective, that might be something we move towards in the future. But, but the companies um, hadn't had to do the studies up until now. You know, now with, with the way the FDA has set forth new regulations, they're, they're starting to do more research. And so hopefully we'll know more soon. But the most exciting thing that I'm working on now is this multi-center uh, randomized controlled trial. We're looking at four different types of injection that people might get, and they're blinded to what they're getting. So there's a bone marrow arm, and there's an uh, adipose arm in the form of stromovascular fraction, uh, which we call SVF. And there's also an arm and umbilical cord tissue. So we actually, and then there's a corticosteroid arm, which is kind of our, our kind of, you know, gold standard arm for treating the arthritis. And we're actually randomizing patients to the point where they may get a bone marrow aspiration done, but only get a steroid injected into them. And so they don't know what they're going to get. And we're following them for a year. We're looking at MRI. We're doing full cell characterization. Um, you know, we got a, a very large multi-million dollar grant from the Marcus Foundation to do this. And, and it's going great. We're almost halfway through our enrollment period. And, you know, one of my big things I'm trying to figure out is what is the optimal source of cells to inject with people who have arthritis? And I think this will get us much closer towards the answer uh, than we've been before. That's great. That sounds like very high yield research. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, and, you know, as we're closing, do you have any final thoughts before we end? Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited to be in this ever-evolving field. Um, you know, as part of AMSSM, we have a regenerative medicine task force, which is going on right now, and we're, we're in the midst of, of writing a position paper for AMSSM. Um, I think it's a really exciting field. Uh, I think anybody who wants to get into it should really understand the basic science um, as well as the clinical ramifications of what we're doing and be very thoughtful in, in their process of, of, of doing this. I think we're still at the point where this is an uphill climb and we're still trying to kind of prove our effectiveness. Uh, but I think over time, um, this is going to change the way we practice medicine, especially uh, orthopedic medicine. I want to thank you very much for your time, Dr. Mountner. This has been very informative. I also want to thank the listeners for their time. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the AMSSM or Emory University.